Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, Tim Robinson on the elsewheres of his life and work. A few weeks back, we broadcast the first of two programmes with writer and artist Tim Robinson, whose remarkable work in mapping and exploring the landscapes of Arran, the Burren and Connemara has given us a rich legacy of books such as Stones of Arran, Setting Foot on the Shores of Connemara and Connemara, A Little Gaelic Kingdom. Before he came to Ireland in the early 1970s, Tim Robinson had already had a career as a visual artist and painter. Tonight he talks about that work. We begin with a reading from one of his new essays in the recently published book Connemara and Elsewhere, this on the nature of time. Where are the nows of yesteryear? Now that so much time has passed, I must admit the possibility that my childhood memories of my grandmother's musical box have been polished into luminosity by nostalgia. It stood on a low occasional table in her little antique shop, overshadowed by towering wardrobes and crowding tall boys, but glinting as with an internal energy. Its simple, almost naive mechanism fascinated me, A spring-powered contraption, like the works of an old clock, drove the rotation of a brass cylinder, on which were hundreds of prickles that twanged the teeth of a graduated steel comb, producing hesitant and plaintive melodies. This tender machinery was mounted on a polished wooden base and covered by a lid with glass sides, through which I could admire the tense coiled spring and dark laborious cogs watch the hypnotically slow turning of the gleaming cylinder and sense the tiny flexure and straining of a tooth of the dull grey comb as each note was prepared, seemed momentarily to resist being detached from silence and then yielded with a slight reluctance, like a ripe blackberry plucked from a briar. Years later, when I read H.G. Wells' description of the time machine, a glittering apparatus of bronze and crystal, I was carried back to the fusty old shop in the quiet North Wales town of Mould. Had I realised then that the musical box itself was a time machine, I would have asked my grandmother for it. She would have kept it for me, and it would be on my desk now. Now, philosophers of time like to illustrate the difficulties, perhaps the impossibility, of travelling back in time by considering the case of an imaginary time traveller who travels back in time and kills off one of his or her grandparents at such an early age as to preclude his own birth and thus his dreadful deed. The fascination of this traditional vein of logical argument obscures an underlying fantasy, unthinkable not only in its paradoxicality but ethically, combining as it does both murder and a very esoteric form of suicide. Among our eminent contemporaries who scratch their head over the paradox, Professor Hugh Mellor of Cambridge has a version that targets the grandfather, while Professor Michael Lockwood of Oxford opts for the grandmother. But if I could meet my grandparents again, far from shortening their lives, I would expend a little of my own in trying to salvage at least a memory of theirs. How little I know of them. What was their background? I remember my grandmother 
shortly before she died, telling me that her grandfather once ate his dinner off the face of the clock on the Liver building in Liverpool. My parents dismissed this as the ramblings of old age when I reported it to them. But I take it as truth, and like to think that this great-great-grandfather of mine was a city dignitary who partook of a banquet for which the clock face served as a table, before its installation marked the completion of Liverpool's Temple of Mercantilism. But I know nothing about my grandparents' forebears, and indeed my memories of my grandparents themselves are hardly more than textural. When I ride back in time, on the musical box perhaps, to Mould, the very name recaptures the little town as it was when my parents used to bring me there on occasional holiday visits almost a lifetime ago, I encounter on the staircase behind the shop the soft, indulgent bulk of my grandmother and glimpse my tall, rigid grandfather ignoring me out of shyness rather than antipathy, turning away in the door space of the further room. Now that I am old enough to be the grandfather of the child I then was, I can understand something of the distance he chose to occupy. But I cannot communicate this fellow feeling, for that was then, as they say, and this is now. Tim Robinson there reading from Connemara and Elsewhere, edited by Jane Conroy, with photos by Nicholas Fev and an introduction by John Elder. When I met Tim Robinson recently, he took me into his workrooms and studio in his home near the pier at Roundstone in Galway. Right, well, we'll go down to the studio and I'll show you some paintings from uh, the days when we were living in Vienna. So this is Folding Landscapes Studio. And uh, this central room here used to be a sort of storage room full of boxes, but we, after we were flooded, we had to clean up everything out of this, and uh, it showed itself to be a wonderful little art gallery space. And so we decided, since we wanted to look at my paintings, almost to remind ourselves of, of what they were like and were they any good or not, because they've actually laid in storage in various people's attics or cellars or, well, tucked away uh, in a special cupboard that I built for them down in this studio for 20, 30 years and looked at. And, uh, and then we were flooded and we knew that during the flooding the tide had got into that cupboard. And when we finally got the place dry enough to be able to handle stuff we, with great trepidation, we opened up the cupboard and dragged the paintings out. And uh, some of them have got some uh, water damage down edges and so on, but I think there's nothing that's completely irreparable. But since then, we've been arranging a series of pop-up exhibitions in this little gallery space here of various phases of this whole career in, in painting. When did uh, that career begin, Tim? Well, I suppose it, it was always there. I always painted uh, as a child and, and then when I was at Cambridge and, and then later when I was teaching in Istanbul. But I began to concentrate on it in about 1960, 61 and was determined to become a full-time artist. So that's when we left Istanbul and moved to Vienna for our... which seemed a nice, quiet place to experiment with one's inevitably dreadful first attempts at full-scale paintings. And so most of these uh, that you'll see here date from that period in the 60s, early 60s. 
And after Istanbul, I think you, you moved to Vienna. That's right, yes. And in Vienna, I think, you observe, in observing life and, and post-war life, mm. you had this sense of, of, of what remained, of, of what as was, hadn't been taken out of the society that I, I in some way in, inspired some of, of what we see in the work. Yes, uh, the work, as you'll see, is, uh, this is a very, very gloomy, uh, sinister painting uh, period. Uh, nothing like the abstractions that I painted later on in London. But now, uh, now that we've got them out and hung them up in their little exhibition, I can see a sort of coherency in them that I wasn't really aware of at the time. And I can certainly see the image of uh, Vienna in them. Because Vienna, although it's a beautiful city, and Baroque churches and all the rest of it, and the magnificent Ringstrasse and its great palatial buildings, we were conscious of... What a sinister history it was. Mm. What a sinister history it had. We came across the huge complexes of workers' flats, workers' apartments called Karl Markshof and Friedrich Engelshof, which had actually been shelled by the Dolphus regime before the First World War. And they were built like fortresses. And then, of course, Austria had never been denazified. It was counted as an occupied country rather than an initiator of the Troubles which meant that there was a great deal of corruption and a sinister atmosphere to it. It was very difficult to ask anyone where they'd been 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Nobody would answer such questions. What did you do during the war? Yes, uh, or what did you do during the Russian occupation mm. of uh, part of Vienna? I remember the very bourgeois apartment that we had. If you looked behind the bushes by the front door down on the street, there was written in German... We will fight till we die, i.e. the war was fought round this corner uh, on our front doorstep, as it were. And there was also a big stencil in Russian that said, this house has been searched and found free from arms. So the Russian army came marching down the street past our front door, as it were, and they were fighting to the last man, the Germans, on that street corner there. Mm. So this what, do, f- what do we see then in in the paintings, in 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 the streetscapes and the imagined scapes that 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 you conjure in this work? Yes, it's only maybe after the event and trying to be wise after the event that I connect these sinister-looking paintings with the sinister aspects of Vienna. But uh, since uh, that period came to an end just before we left Vienna. And uh, as you see, many of these paintings are of uh, horrible monsters of one sort or another. These monsters then sort of evolved into uh, a series of paintings based on the winged victory in in the Louvre, the famous classical statue. And these are very joyful, ebullient, airy, floating pieces. So thank God I got some of this uh, dark stuff out of my system at that early stage. And... uh, reverted to uh, what I would regard as my normal, cheerful self. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at, at one of the uh, yeah. was, uh, less cheerful ones. There is this monstrous creature emerging uh, from the subterranean world, as it were, you know, into uh, an architectural landscape, in a sense, with, uh, with a moon. With the, and it, it, the, describe the colours and tell us what, what we're looking at here. Yes, I, this is one of the series called uh, Cities in a Vacuum. And I never quite worked out the sense of that phrase, but uh, these are cities that are too perfect for human beings to live in, except in their sewers. So it's a sort of futuristic 
landscape of uh, incredibly thin, towering blocks with no windows, all in black. And both the background and the foreground are in black, which makes it difficult to read in perspective. But the perspective is very, very strong and severe. And uh, so you have an immense, almost out-of-this-world out of experience here, uh, or a dream of a city built in infinite spaces in which uh, the human beings, or what's left of them, are these curious bestial creatures crawling around in the corners. And I remember a friend of ours in Vienna looking at these and saying that uh, we are in the position of uh, Paleolithic man, Stone Age man, given an atom bomb to play with. And that phrase uh, stuck in my mind as the dangers and the horrors of the powers that we were unleashing. Mm. Of course, all this was at the height of the Cold War, and in Vienna we were fairly close to the frontier zone, really, and um, there were spies, or rumoured to be spies, everywhere. I mean, they said, we were told that, you know, if two artists sit down and decide to form a little group, they're immediately joined by two other people who turn out to be the spy from the East and the spy from the West. No a conspiracy of artists. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And in, in this painting as well, there's a kind of a, almost like a burned orange moon. Yes, some some celestial object uh, mm. which looks as if it's come to the end of its life, like uh, there are a sequence of stars in the evolution of stars. Mm. They can become red giants. Mm. So I imagine that that's what that is. Okay, there. with a hole. With a hole in it. Yeah, a black hole. Yes. These were shown, I had my first exhibitions in Vienna, in uh, Galerie Fuchs, uh, which was the gathering place of the Viennese sort of belated surrealist mm. school, the Wiener Schule. And uh, they, they uh, enjoyed, they were in tune with these paintings and uh, these harmonised in some way with the strange paintings which were being done in Vienna at that time. I remember one man who painted nothing but bunches of asparagus mm. in the most meticulous medieval techniques. They went in for elaborate medieval and Renaissance uh, methods of painting and um, mixing their own pigments and so on, preparing their own canvases. Very, very detailed, laborious work. Uh, some of it quite impressive and some of it quite ridiculous to look back on. How did you learn the techniques, the skills necessary to make work like this? I mean, obviously, you, you, from the beginning, you've clearly you had a very strong sense of, of draftsmanship and that ability. Uh, I think there's a story, isn't there, about you, your parents keeping uh, drawings that you'd made from a very young age. Yeah. But that's, that's something else again. You know, to, to, to go from that to this requires work. Yes, I never had any uh, tuition um, when, when I was young, I had a romantic idea. I, well, I wanted to be a painter and I wanted to be a mathematician. And uh, I had a romantic idea that... Um, oh, I can see a robin in, our, in my studio over there. <laughs> the yeah. robin is called Longley. <laughs> Ignoring Longley for the moment. Uh, where was I? Yes, I had this idea that uh, art schools were the ruination of genius in artists. They were much to be shunned. I got this from reading about the Impressionists and all those waves of different artists, each of whom rebelled against the masters of the Academy in France in the late 1900s and 1800s and so on. But at the same time, I knew that I couldn't possibly teach myself mathematics. 
So I opted to go to study mathematics, which I did at Cambridge, and um, taught myself what techniques I, I needed. And I always very firmly believed for many, many years that the question of technique was irrelevant. If you were an artist, then the technical matters came, were completely second, secondary and would come to you naturally. I no longer quite believe that. But I did at that stage believe that, um, that I could uh, take up, uh, like in this painting that we're looking at here, the study of very elaborate perspective and so on, and the, the buildings which are made of a curious sort of ice-like texture, which actually I did with the end of a soggy matchbox dipped in the paint and then drawn across to create all these. All the shading is in uh, um, radiating lines which appear to radiate from the, the red giant of the sun or whatever it is in the background. So that was a technique I invented for myself and uh, used repeatedly for a long time. So you were using a matchbox and... And the, it's ink on paper. Was that your preferred medium at the time? Did you use... Were you using canvas? Were you using oils? Uh, I didn't really start using canvas and oils until we moved from Vienna after two or three years out back to London because it was becoming obvious that if I wanted a career as an avant-garde young artist it wasn't going to be in Vienna mm. uh, so we moved back to London and uh, and I started to paint there and uh, started doing very large abstract paintings which again had a geometrical basis to them sometimes a mathematical basis to them the various shapes in them revolved around or related to various lines and points which wouldn't be explicitly shown in the painting itself, but will be in its underlying structure. I was always very, very interested in structure at that time. So I was exhibiting them, the abstracts, in uh, the Listen Gallery, which is still in existence and doing very, very well, um, and uh, Signals Gallery before that, which was the avant-garde gallery of its day, and a very brief day it was. But then I, w- and then I was doing paintings which... Uh, revolved around, used a, a very limited repertoire of, of shapes, arcs of circles and straight lines. And uh, these arcs were chosen so that they would delineate, say, the biggest circle that you could squeeze into a square, or the biggest half circle you could squeeze into a square, or the biggest circle you could squeeze into half a square. That sort of relationship. These relations were not obvious once the, uh, once the painting was up on the wall. Um, they'd only be obvious from my preparatory drawings. But nevertheless, the internal hidden relations between these shapes meant that they could be put in an infinity of external relationships which would be satisfactory or look as if they had some uh, some weight, some sort of uh, formal authority mm. behind them. And then the next move was to cut those same shapes out of sheets of hardboard, make them about a yard across or so. And in one exhibition that I had, it was called Four Colour Theorem, because this was the time when there was a great deal of interest in that mathematical theorem, presumed discovery. I wasn't quite sure that it was a discovery at that stage, but uh, just noting the, the strange fact that uh, it appears that four colours are enough to colour up any map, however complex it is, without any two adjacent countries having the same colour. Now, that seemed a very obvious fact, but incredibly difficult to prove. 
and a proof had been produced which uh, some mathematicians found highly unsatisfactory. So I was interested in this particular theorem for various reasons at that time, and so I called this piece Four-Colour Theorem, and the four different shapes that I cut out of board were painted in different colours, and there were about 80 of them, and they were on a flat lawn up near Kenwood House in on Hampstead Heath, and people were invited to move them around and make a landscape out of them. And that was fine until uh, there came a sort of boisterous holiday crowd and bust them all up. So that was the end of that exhibition. <laughs> but then later on I did a, a more uh, coherent version of the same thing in which the shapes were just black on one side and white on the other. And they were shown in the Blacktout Gallery in Camden Arts Centre in London, a big gallery, and um, on a black floor. And initially they were all black side up. And people would come in and fumble around and find them with their feet and begin to turn them over. And it was like a moon opening. Uh, it had a sort of moon-like effect. And this was just at the time of the first landing on the moon. And if you remember, the TV images of that first step on the moon were almost incomprehensible, black and white. You couldn't get a grasp on what was going on. So that's what inspired that particular thing, and that was called Moonfield. So these were big, elaborate installations, and I had plans for several more, but for some reason I lost confidence in my ability to uh, persuade people that they wanted these things and would put them on, and so on. I lost faith in the hustle of, and the hustling of uh, the London art scene and began to withdraw from it. Was that a disillusionment with with that commercial yeah. drive and, and, I suppose, the uglier realities of, of the art world? Yes, yes. I remember in particular the American artist Carl Andre, who describes himself as a romantic materialist and who meant a great deal to me. He had an exhibition in the, Mirren, in the Listen Gallery and he'd come across and he'd spent a long time poking around in scrapyards and building sites to find something that sparked off his creativity. And eventually, on some demolition site, he'd found a whole piles and piles of broken-up, reinforced concrete, chunks of concrete which had twisted iron bars sticking out of it. And he collected a lot of these and arranged them on the floor of a basement gallery in the Lisson, and uh, arranged them so that the um, movement appeared to sort of... These um, twisted iron bits that came up out of the concrete rubble were put in such a juxtaposition that the eye flowed along one and onto the next one and down that one and through the next block and up and so on. So that, to me, it was a very, very beautiful construction. And when you came down the steps into this gallery space and were looking at it for the first time, it was like looking at um, a sea. It was like looking at um, an X-ray of waves on a sea, if you could have such a thing. Uh, that goes longly out at the door. <laughs> Bye. Robin likes likes hanging about. Right. Um, and then, to my horror, I found that these blocks were being sold off one by one. And that really helped my disillusionment with the London art world. I should have... It was naive to be surprised, but uh, for something that had been deliberately made out of valueless material and made as a whole... To be sold off piecemeal as chunks of concrete with twisted bars out of them, I thought was disgusting. So that was just one little episode. So I found myself working more and more privately in my studio. Um, 
I used to go for long walks around London, trying to persuade myself that I could walk through London as if it were the open countryside, orientating myself by the sound of trains on railway tracks and so on, all by the sun. And sometimes on these walks, I'd, uh, my eye would be arrested by a little dot on the pavement, usually a little washer or a button or something that somebody had dropped. And I'd bring these home and stick them on the wall of my studio. And sometimes when a visitor was sitting there talking to me, perhaps, and their eye might just rove over the wall, and suddenly I'd see the, the gaze become fixed, and I'd know that they'd spotted one of these little dots and were taken aback by it or puzzled, i.e. that a moment had been plucked out of the flux of time. So these were about the smallest artworks one could imagine. Also, I found a very, very cheap material, uh, which was the doweling rods, wooden, round wooden rods in all sorts of thicknesses from about an eighth of an inch up to two or three inches thick and any length you wanted from a few feet, uh, a foot or so, to 30 feet. And I bought a lot of these and painted them white with black rings round at curious intervals. And when they were heaped up in a the corner, they were all different sizes and thicknesses and weights and lengths and so on. As one critic said, they looked like measure become organic. And they did look a bit like measuring rods. They looked as if a collection of measuring rods had begun to interbreed and evolve or something. <laughs> um, so they were cost-free works of art and not for sale. And so those were re- resurrected about uh, five, six years ago. Well, before that, actually, they were shown in Immer. And they were grouped around one rod, which hung on a multitude of silk threads, hung vertically from the ceiling by 30 or 40 uh, threads of different coloured silk. The rod was white. And where these threads were pinned onto the ceiling, you couldn't actually see what colour they were. But as they came down and converged into the middle of the top of the rod, it was as if a little iridescence formed a little rainbow in the air. And then suddenly it became white, and it was called the decision, this piece. The second time it was shown, which was in the Hugh Lane, we called it the decision. But uh, in Immer they were shown together with various texts of my writings, which seemed to have something to do with this idea of the hanging rod which was a yard long, and I envisaged it as a step towards the centre of the earth. So it was like a, an element of a celestial geometry or a celestial geography. There's uh, a, very, a very strong sense of the importance of, of gravity. Yes, absolutely. The pu- pull yes. of gravity and the lightness of gravity in our lives. Absolutely, yes, and that's a, a theme I've taken up in writing since then. So everything then in my public works, had dwindled down to invisibility because these things were only shown, these rods and shown were uh, only shown 10 or 20 years later. And then rather suddenly we decided to leave London and move to the Aran Islands. And it's a different story from there on. That was 1972. And yeah. uh, do, you, do you remember your, your arrival? Do you remember coming here for the first time, coming to Aran for the first time, and, and, and what you felt? Well, our first time in Aran was... We'd just gone there out of a bit of curiosity raised by Robert Flaherty's film Man of Aran, which I hadn't seen, but Marate had seen. And we found, we visited it in May, I suppose, when the wildflowers were at their most riotous and uh, the lambs were skipping in the fields and the waves were beautiful on the cliffs and so on. It was all paradise. We'd stayed for 
10 days or so maybe. And, uh, and then later on in the year we had some problems with our landlord and uh, decided to take this jump. We weren't not sure what I was doing with my paintings and so on. And I wanted to write and started writing. So we made a decision to, to leave everything in London and uh, move out and uh, maybe have a month or a couple of months in Arran while we looked around ourselves and decided what was to be done next. And uh, at the end of a uh, sort of 40-year detour that's been occasioned by that decision, <laughs> we're shortly going to be back on the track of our lives. <laughs> the move towards map-making from painting, from making the installations, was mm. was it a natural progression in a sense? When, because you were describing almost perspective and looking, seeing the little things on the street which you take up and put on a wall. Mm. Uh, so you, you're obviously conscious from early on of, of looking down and seeing the shape of things. And so w- was there an, a natural progression then even in terms of making marks on, on paper towards, towards making maps? Well, in retrospect, there was. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. Um, I w- we were settled in the Aran Islands and I was writing and the novel, experimental novel that I was writing had sort of fallen to bits into a number of short stories. Like the socks. Yes, <laughs> like the socks. And... Um, and I was spending much more time exploring the islands and talking to the old fellows and beginning to collect place names because I'd realised how interesting they were and how they were being forgotten, even though I was only just beginning to learn Irish, which was a rather absurd way around to do it. Normally you need a, at least a degree and a knowledge of Old Irish and Middle Irish and several other sorts of Irish to collect the place names. But uh, I'd waded in and eventually got so much help from professionals in the field that, uh, on the whole, my collection stands. But then uh, the local postmistress, uh, she suggested that I make a map of the island since I spent all my time exploring it and I could obviously draw as well. Such an idea had never occurred to me before. I mean, the idea, the abstract idea of maps had been present in many of my works in many ways before, but I never committed myself to this sort of contract with reality that uh, undertaking a proper map means or does mean to me anyway so I started that very night and drew a sort of rough sketch of a map and based it on the available one inch maps which were a hundred years out of date and then moved on to make a more elaborate version based on the six inch ordnance survey maps which equally were a hundred years out of date but very accurate topographically but very minimal in their information about place names because the place names were anglicised and most of them just weren't there at all so I fell into that job with enormous enthusiasm and uh, produced the map of Arran within a, a year or so. And the first one is a very simple version. Uh, in two subsequent editions, I've been striving more and more for something that is adequate to or responsible to the beauty and uh, uniqueness of the Arran Islands. And uh, then I read something about the Burren in uh, Lloyd Prager's book, the, the Way That I Went, that inspired me to go to Ballyvorn and to see the spring flowers because I'd already become besotted with uh, botany mm. in the Aran Islands, which was, again, a totally new study to me. And so I spent a couple of years making a map of the Burren, which was, uh, it was a huge task, of course, compared to the Aran Islands, and uh, involved a lot of loneliness and slugging away in the rain over limestone clints and grikes and so on 
It was uh, psychologically and physically uh, quite wearing. But I'm very pleased with the map that I produced of that. And then it seemed obvious that uh, having done the Aran Islands and the Burren, the next place to do would be South Connemara. And that would cover all the land that we could see from our little home on the Aran Islands. It seemed a mad project to map everything you could see. But it had a sort of uh, hidden sense to it, hidden dynamism behind it. But uh, when I started on the South Connemara coast, which is endlessly complex, it's a, it's a fractal, it's uh, a very high degree, it gradually became obvious that uh, I had to stick on the rest of Connemara as well, so I, it took years. I presume you didn't think about that at all. I presume you didn't think this may take me five years, ten years. Well, I remember doing an estimate that it would take uh, two years, and of course it took about ten years. I think it took eight years altogether. Mm. And, and even the drawing of it took 18 months. Um, but the drawing was crucial, and the fact that I was drawing it rather than getting a draftsman to draw it. Because uh, nowadays, of course, maps just aren't done like that. There's uh, a band of specialists would be engaged in the satellite mapping or aerial photography or whatever it was, and translating that computerized computer programs, translating that into shapes on paper. What do you feel now about those maps and that process that, I suppose, gave us so much on the one hand and, in another way, seemed to take away a great deal. Do you mean the Ordnance Survey maps? Mm. Yes, the, the Ordnance Survey maps are Ordnance Survey maps of, say, 1839, when most of this area was covered for the first time, and then in 1898, I think, the second Ordnance Survey. The miracles of accuracy... Now, considering that they were done without modern instrumentation, and they were done by uh, an army of men spanning out across the countryside and stretching chains and taking sightings with their instruments and so on, or waiting for weeks on the top of one of these mountains up here, Bean and Taidur, so-called the, the cliff of the soldier, because one of the sappers fell off and they sacrificed one or two in, in this process. Uh, waiting for a signal to come through from a mountain in Kerry. This sort of enormous um, undertaking and pursued down to minute details of, of topography. I'm often struck by the fact when I'm out in uh, Randstone Bog where there's sort of 100, 150 lakes of very, very elaborate, um, spiky, unusual shapes because it's very low-lying land. The um, Ordnance Survey maps of those lakes are spot-on accurate, every little wrinkle of the coastline. But on the other hand, the place names are uh, anglicised on those, and um, an enormous lot is lost in that sort of process. For instance, on the Arden Islands map, the Ordnance Survey has a a little place name on the south-east corner of the bigger of the three Arden Islands, which looks like Ilon Anor which looks as if it might mean the island of the gold or something like that. But uh, since it's not an island, you realise at first that this word isn't Ilon, it's Glon. It's a glen, it's a little valley there. And it's actually Nanyor of the drops, of the tears. So it's the glen of the tears, or in the biblical phrase, the veil of tears is exactly that. Why? Because before the famine, uh, emigration started from the Aran Islands, and people would emigrate to America by 
getting a lift in a fishing boat across to the coast of Connemara. They'd walk 20 or 30 miles along the coast of Connemara into Galway. They'd wait for one of the sailing boats to uh, pick them up and to take them. And eventually, when they, they got underway and the sailing boats would sail out of Galway Bay between the Aran Islands, they would find that the wind was in their faces coming off the Atlantic, and they would have to heave to or hold to, whatever the phrase is, they would have to wait until the, the winds were favourable. And the, the place they waited was just in the lee of the island, opposite Ilan and Yor. So people could come down to that little glen of tears and uh, see their loved ones on the boats and wave to them and so on, but be unable to speak to them. So that was commemorated, I'm sure, in the name Glen of, Glen of Tears. No doubt, there were tears. So that's a, that's a treasure of a story, which uh, by ignorance and ill-famed, ill-conceived uh, policies was perpetuated. You delved into Irish, to the Irish language, learned it and have come to love it, I know. Mm. And with Liam McAnumara, you've been working on a translation of Crane Achilla, yeah. great novel, a remarkable work. Tell me, first of all, about how you came to know Liam McAnumara and, and that process of working together on, I suppose, on, on dual language editions of, of, of the yes, books. Yes, yes. I first met Liam many, many years ago when uh, I was uh, visiting the place law department in UCD. He was working there at that time. And we became friends, and I can't remember the, the stages of all that now, but we've been very close for a long time. And um, often enough, when I've had a problem with uh, translating a, a bit of Irish, I've phoned up, phoned up Liam. My Irish is extremely limited. I mean, uh, while I was working around South Connemara, and absolutely dependent on being able to pick up stories from people who who were much more fluent in Irish than they were in English, or much more forthcoming in Irish than they were in English. And I was also dependent on being able to ask, when is high tide today? Or are there any signs among the rocks, any particular points among these rocks that I should look out for to tell me when the high tide is, when the tide is flowing in and so on, so that I could walk out across the sands to various tidal islands and so on. It was absolutely essential. I wouldn't have got anywhere without the Irish language. But at the moment, at the uh, same time, academically, my Irish is far from respectable and uh, it's also got a bit rusty of recent years. So although I love the language and enjoy reading it and read fairly fluently and use it, or was using it every day and doing my maps and writing my books, I wouldn't, I don't like to talk it in public nowadays, out of respect for the language itself. And the business of, of translating a work like Crane Killer, for instance, so mm. how, how did you begin with that? I mean, it, is it a matter of uh, starting on, on page one and working through, or do you again delve in and, and begin to unravel uh, and, and work and find a form of English that mm. in some way matches the Irish? Yeah, I think it started off with an article by Michael Cronin, in, in, in the expert on theory of translations in the Irish Times. And it was, among other things, lamenting the fact that there wasn't a, an English translation on the market of Crane Achille, which is supposed to be the great Irish modernist novel, but which is a locked box to most critics, most commentators. So it's much more commented on than read. So in, quite quixotically then, Liam and I decided that we would undertake a translation. And at that stage it was for our own interest and so on. 
And we more or less finished the translation by the time we were looking for a publication, for a publisher for it. We hadn't thought that far ahead. So really we started at the beginning and, and plunged in and uh, Liam would produce a straightforward first draft of a translation. That was the heavy lifting bit, really. Then I'd work through that and we'd pass every phrase in it to and fro between us and we'd consult every known dictionary and unknown dictionary of, of uh, Connaught Irish and Connemara Irish and list of Fockel, Astros, Muck and other tomes like that and uh, eventually agree uh, or agree to disagree and take turns in being right um, as to how to treat each bit of it. And then I suppose endless revisions once we got more of a grasp of the structure of the, and uh, the tone and the uh, velocity of the novel itself as a whole we would amend our individual decisions and so on so many years of uh, second thoughts third thoughts fourth thoughts and so on so it'd be very interesting to see how it's received did you enjoy that work oh yes yes that was absolutely fascinating and of course we were in no hurry we were working at it in between other things and so on and then at one stage I was in Cambridge and Liam and his wife Barbara came across and together with Mairead we had a a brainstorming session and solved a whole lot of outstanding puzzles about the work and our choice of words and so on and that was very good perhaps to do that away from Connemara. 40 years is a long time, and you, you, you know, you've talked about the, uh, this ABC of Earth Wonders, Aaron, the Burn of Con- and Connemara, but mm. you know, I wonder, in some ways, did, did this place, did these landscapes become a kind a home? They have, of course, become a home, but at the same time, I haven't put down roots, and in fact, I've written against the concept of roots, which I described as being unacceptably vegetable. Roots. And they hold you down. They hold you down, they hold you in place, they limit your development. You're, you're, you're probably sucking up ancient poisons through them. And so on, there's many reasons for being very distrustful of roots. And uh, so instead of that, um, I'm beginning to write about the centre of gravity as uh, an imaginary organ of the body. At a certain point of view, now that this work is done, and as I say, it's up to anybody else to carry on and do it again, do it better, or correct it, or whatever, or start from scratch and so on. And undoubtedly other people will be mapping, remapping and rewriting these areas forever, one hopes. So there's nothing nothing final, no no final diktat in my writings on them at all. It's all tentative. Tim, we've we've come into this, if you like, the, the front room of the studio here, where you've done so much work and and looking out at the bay from, I suppose, from two sides. Um, and you know, thinking of of this place and for yourself, Marade's home to you for the last thirty years um, mm. in in Roundstone. You're not saying goodbye to to Connemara, but you're you're moving away in a sense that your work is done and yes. looking to two other places as well and other sources, I suppose, of inspiration for for the the writing. I, I hope very much there will be other places of inspiration. I'll be <laughs> excited to see that happen. Yes, the, the latest book to come out is Connemara and elsewhere, and this is really a photographic essay by uh, a young French photographer Nicolas Feve of my writings on Connemara. 
and uh, taken bits of these my texts and faced them or combined them in all sorts of cunning ways with photographs, most of which are fairly generic. They don't really represent particular places in Connemara, but uh, particular situations like little boggy corners or threads of barbed wire across a gap with uh, sheep's wool caught in them and so on. They have their own subdued poetry to them. He's also interested in the philosophy of and history of photography, so there's a good deal of sort of textual self-reference and so on going on there, and lots of uh, linguistic games going on between the image and the text. We've called this book Connemara and Elsewhere because at the end I've put in an appendix of three relatively recent bits of writing which are not about Connemara and which are perhaps a pointer to the direction that I'd like my writing to go in if I'm, if I'm given a, a third half of life, as it were. Would you read from one of those? Yes, right. I think I'll read you one called Where Are the Nows of Yesteryear? Which, as the title, is just one S short of Where Are the Snows of Yesteryear? About three years ago, I spent some time in Cambridge. And while I was there, I used to go to meetings of the Moral Sciences Club society, which uh, I would never have dared to do when I was a student there. That is where Wittgenstein and Russell and so on, giants like that, fought their battles. But I find the, the work that was going on there, the discussions that were going on there, very approachable and, and very valuable. There was quite a lot of talk about the nature of time, and led usually by the Professor Emeritus Hugh Miller and his theory of time. And I think I came out of those uh, sessions perhaps not much the wiser about the nature of time, but with this title, Where Are the Nows of Yesteryear? because his theory revolved around an analysis of the concept of the now, the present instance. The title hung around in my head for a long time until I fitted it to memories of my own life, which is, I'll read to you now. I've become very much more interested in strict form in writing as well than I was when I was doing the uh, relatively baggy Connemara books. So this particular piece is written in about seven or eight longish paragraphs, each of which begins and ends with the word now. So I'll just read a couple from the beginning and a couple from the end of this. Now and again, I used to lose myself in two paintings hung on that staircase, La Rique's The Brawl by Maisonnier, Queen Victoria's favourite painter, and Millet's Angelus, so much admired by Salvador Dali. Both represent instants of stasis. In the first, a pack of cards lies scattered on the floor among overturned table, chairs and wine bottles. Two gamblers have leapt to confront each other and are being restrained by their companions. One of the antagonists has a dagger. A man behind him tries to twist it out of his grasp while another seizes him around the chest. It can hardly have been my gentle grandmother who told me that the model for the man with the dagger is said to have died from his frustrated exertions in this role. The other would-be fighter is trying to draw his sword but is obstructed by a fifth man who holds him back with one arm and stretches out the other towards the face of the man with the dagger, hand wide open and fingers crooked, in a gesture that shouts no so loudly that time is stopped. Every detail of the scene is meticulously rendered, though one could scarcely call the result lifelike. My sonier masters time, and here 
A moment is preserved as if under brown varnish, but space is beyond him. As one critic has written, his prodigious powers of decomposition left him incapable of putting anything together again. And in this painting, the dimension of depth is all awry. Figures seem to step through each other. Space is crumpled and tumbled. But perhaps all this is masterly, Einsteinian, a general relativity of drunken rage. The other painting, in contrast, offers contemplative stillness. The chimes of the Angelus, conducted by a flock of rooks high in the evening sky, come from a church tower on the horizon of an endless plain to two potato pickers. The young couple stand with bowed heads, at their feet a half-filled basket. They are statuesque figures alone in the vast emptiness. In one of his homages to this painting, Dali transforms them into rook-haunted ruinous towers, much taller than the dark cypresses growing around their bases. Dali's X-ray eyes also made out that Mie had painted the potato basket over the representation of a coffin in which the two peasants had brought their dead child for burial. In another interpretation of the scene, Dali diagnoses sexual tension. He depicts the moment after the Angelus, in which the male peasant leaps at the female as urgently as Mysonia's furious gamesters strain to stab each other. Of course, as a child I was aware of none of this. For me, each of the two paintings on the staircase was a banner parading through all time an ancient and incomprehensible now. Now, or never, having awoken my grandparents' old house from the comfortable doze it has enjoyed in my memory for so long, is the time to record another aspect of it, before the mice of forgetfulness gnaw it all away. Behind the front ground-floor room, occupied by the shop, down a few stairs was a semi-basement, a mere coal-hole, I suppose, but it seemed spacious to me, into which coke used to be avalanched every now and then through a hatch in the rear wall of the house. I liked to stand on a wooden step by the coke hill and look out of this hatch, my chin on a level with the cobbles of the back lane. Opposite, the parish church towered among tall trees. The shadowy space between the backs of the houses and the churchyard wall was projected into the unreal by my worm's eye perspective on it. When, just now, I summoned up maps and photographs from the internet, I found that this little region of mystery no longer exists. The back lane and the terrace houses, of which my grandparents was one, have been swept away and replaced by a sloping lawn, a civic amenity offering a view of the old church from the main street. The lane mattered to me because it led to a children's playground with a few swings, a small roundabout and a pair of parallel bars. As a devotee of Tarzan, I was proud of my ability to hang by my knees from one of these bars. My head must have been close to the ground in this position, for once, when my long-suffering knees relaxed their grip, I came down with a thump that sent me wailing back down the lane, but did no visible damage to my skull. I could say that I've never been the same since, but that is true of every moment of my life. My image of myself, upside down, bat-like, in the rectangular space below the bar, like that of myself at the hatch with my chin on its sill, gives me a measure of my size at that time of my life. Our subjective experience of the flow of time, says Hugh Miller, is no evidence that time really does flow. What we actually experience 
is change in ourselves, the accumulation of memories, of memories of memories. This must include memories of stages in physical growth and of the incidents that knock such memories into our heads. My brief surrender to gravity, my tearful return down the lane, are lodged in the loops of my brain stuff, as are my grandfather quelling my sobs with the testy formula, Now then! And my grandmother applying as a verbal salve to my sore head a soft dove-like repetition of Now! 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 And to end, let me open what always felt to me to be the secret heart of my grandparents' house. At floor level, in the corner of the sitting room, was a cupboard full of games that must have been old-fashioned even in those days of my childhood. Sometimes I would delve into it before breakfast, when there was a faint acrid tang of dead ashes in the room, as yet unvisited by the day's routines. There were tiddlywinks and marbles, packs of cards for playing happy families, and shallow boxes that opened up into trays scattered with cardboard fish one could angle for with a little magnet on a string. On the floor of the cupboard, or between the leaves of big illustrated books, I used occasionally to find more valuable fish too, escaped perhaps from a long-lost pouch. They were delicately cut out from wafers of a pearly translucent material, and must have been tokens in some antique parlour game. As I realised much later, when I read in a Jane Austen novel of a girl who, after an evening visit, could talk of nothing but the fish she had won and the fish she had lost. Most precious of all was a set of ivory spillikins in a narrow little box, also of ivory, with a delicately fretted lid. Each spillikin had a slender stem some four inches long, and a head representing a Chinese sage, a sickle moon, a long-tailed bird or some odd animal. Piled on a tabletop, they formed a tangle, from which, with the aid of a little hook, one tried to extricate one spillikin at a time, without causing the least trembling among the rest. An operation as delicate as that of capturing an elusive memory without awakening others interlinked with it that one would rather leave undisturbed. Where is this test of the subtle and steady hand now? At the bottom of a box of crumpled letters, photographs and ephemera, perhaps? forgotten in the attic of some house I have long quitted. And the moment of first finding them in my grandparents' cupboard? All events have an equal claim to a tenseless reality, says Professor Meller. All have their address in space-time. Among them must be the contents of everybody's nows, whether past, present or future, remembered or forgotten, observed or unobserved. While it is not quite pleasing to hear that countless redundant trivialities are of the stuff of the universe, I like to think that the particular nows that have been picked out by our passionate attention to them are stacked away separately, as it were, in vaults, like paintings bought by a millionaire on the advice of experts. If the connoisseurship of memory is the human role in this indiscriminately memorious world, then among those treasures is certainly my grandmother's quietly challenging utterance on first emptying out the box of spillikins for me. Now. That was Tim Robinson speaking with me in Roundstone in Galway and reading from his essays included in Connemara and Elsewhere, edited by Jane Conroy and published by the RIA. 
on next week's programme, I'll be meeting and talking to Turner Prize winning artist Duncan Campbell in Glasgow. Four of his films are currently on show at IMA in Dublin. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.